Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special conversation and reading with Terry Tempest Williams and host Michael Lerner, recorded live at Commonweal in Bolinas, California, and co-presented with Point Reyes Books and the Mesa Refuge. Terry Tempest Williams, welcome back to Commonweal in the New School. Thank you. Virtually all of you who are here uh, or streaming know Terry, uh, a truly visionary writer, uh, teacher, activist, uh, storyteller, story catcher, um, and beloved friend of uh, the Commonweal community mm-hmm. and of my beloved friend and colleague, Jennifer Stoll, uh, um, about whom we will say a little more in a few minutes. Um, Terry, I wondered if you would start with a reading for us. Of course. It's so wonderful to be here. I, I hope I can speak. I just... I'm overcome with gratitude and emotion and to see us all here uh, in this raw place that we're all sharing. So I'm trusting spirit um, to be with us and I come to you deeply humbled by this invitation by two people in a community that I truly love who have not only raised me up to places I couldn't have imagined were possible to being soulmates. So I'm going to read for five minutes and just a quick um, background story. During the pandemic in 2020, um, I met a young woman named Bianca Giever, who has a wonderful gift with video uh, storytelling. Long story shorter, um, we decided to do night walks together uh, for a full moon cycle. And I was in Utah, she was in Vermont. She's 30 years old, I I at the time, I was 62. And we would go on walks, come back, write each other a letter, and then uh, record it to each other and send an audio note. And we became incredibly close, intergenerational communion, you could say. It ended, there was a void, and she was sent by the New York Times for the Daily to cover the fires in California. She was in Los Angeles. She called me. She was terrified. She said, I cannot see. I cannot breathe. There, the sun is like a cigarette burn. Um, and when I awoke, the words that came into my mind were, obituary for the land, will you write one? Between us, um, I don't believe in an obituary for the land because the land doesn't know death. It's only rebirth. But this was a, a young woman I loved and cared for, and she had asked an older person to write something for her. And I said, I will try. And she said, I need it in an hour. <laughs> and so this is an excerpt. We cannot breathe. This is our mantra in America now. We cannot breathe because of the smoke. We cannot breathe because of a virus that has entered our homes. We cannot breathe because of police brutality and too many black bodies and brown bodies dead on the streets. We cannot breathe because we are holding our breath for the people and places we love. I was asked to write an obituary for the land, but I realize I am writing an obituary for us, for the life we have lost and can never return to, And within this burning of Western lands, our innocence and denial is in flames. The obituary will be short. The time came and these humans died from the old ways of being. Good riddance, it was time. The cause of death was the terminal disease of solipsism, whereby humans put themselves at the center of the universe. It was only about them. And in so doing, they had been dead to a world that is alive. To the power of these burning, illuminated Western lands that have shaped our character, inspired our souls, and restored our belief in what is beautiful and enduring, I will never write your obituary. Because even as you burn, you are throwing down seeds that will sprout and flower. Trees will grow and forests will rise again as living testaments to how one survives change. 
It is time to grieve and mourn the dead and believe in the power of renewal. If we do not embrace our grief, our sadness will come out sideways in unexpected forms of depression and violence. We must dare to find a proper ceremony to collectively honor the dead from the coronavirus as we approach, now over a million citizens lost, we must honor the lives engulfed in these Western fires and the lives we will continue to lose from the climate crisis at hand. Only then can we begin the work of restoration, respecting the generations to come as we clear a path toward cooling a warming planet. This will be our joy. Let this be a humble tribute, an exaltation, an homage, and an open-hearted eulogy to all that we are losing, to fire, to floods, to hurricanes and tornadoes, and the invisible virus that has called us all home and brought us to our knees. We are not the only species that lives and loves and breathes on this miraculous planet called home. May we remember this and raise a fistful of ash to all the lives lost that it holds. Grief is love. How can we hold this grief without holding each other? To bear witness to this moment of undoing is to find the strength and spiritual will to meet the dark and smoldering landscapes where we live. We can cry. Our tears will fall like rain in the desert and wash off our skins of ash so our pores can breathe, so our bodies can breathe back the lives that we have taken for granted. I will mark my heart with an X made of ash that says the power to restore life resides here. The future of our species will be decided here, not by facts, but by love and loss. Hand on my heart, I pledge allegiance to the only home, Earth, I will ever know. Terry, could you read that sentence that about the future of our species again, just so that it really sinks in for us? The future of our species. The future will, of our species will be decided here, not by facts, but by love and loss. Mm -hmm. The future of our species will be decided here, not by facts, but by love and loss. loss. Terry and I decided that we wanted to dedicate this conversation to someone who does not want us to dedicate it to her. Uh, and that is our beloved friend and colleague, Jennifer Stoll, who came to Commonweal in 1986, I believe and became the director of the Retreat Center in 1987. And so uh, stepped down as of January 1 as director of the Retreat Center, but remains as senior staff for the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program, for which we are uh, deeply grateful. But I, I want to say just a few words, um, not only about Jennifer, but about what she has held at Commonwealth, because a Commonweal has an outer world presence of some of the things Oren has mentioned. You know, my favorite list is closing down the youth prisons of California and beginning the effort that stopped drilling off the Northern California coast and rewrote the laws governing California's fisheries and got them passed by the legislature and signed by the governor and implemented. And so we have, you know, the camps are unmentioned for young people. And so we have this outer world presence that's very real and that brings together people from across all kinds of spectrums of belief. But there's also a mystery at the heart of Commonweal. How did this place come into being? Uh, you know, there's a story about how I looked out at this site and had a vision of a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth. But did that come to me or did that come through me? Well, my belief is that it came through me. And in fact, if you look at the history of Commonwealth, there have been, from the beginning, strong women who have held the mystery. From Carolyn Brown, uh, uh, to uh, just throughout, to Rachel Naomi Remen, to Susan Braun, uh, Jennifer Stahl, 
uh, many, many others. But it has been not only women, but primarily women who have held the mystery of this place and who have understood that in some way that we don't understand, there is an invisible world mm. uh, from which many of us believe, whether rightly or not, you can decide depending on your views, that source energy comes. And Terry is part of that tradition. So uh, I just want to say that no one at Commonweal in our community of women who have held the mystery uh, has held it longer and with more quiet depth and intention than Jennifer Stoll. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to honor her even though she told us clearly that she did not want to be honored. Uh, but, you know, there's a moment I said, Jennifer, take one for the team, you know? Uh, there is a moment at which we have to acknowledge, not so much for Jennifer, but for ourselves, that there is this movement of mystery uh, from which I, at least, and many of us, derive the energy to continue the work in dark times. So... Um, those are my reflections, and Terry, I want to ask you for yours. I love you. We share the love of the same man, which is Brooke. Um, Brooke met Jennifer before I did, and he came home and said, I met the most magical being, and you have remained so in our life. You welcomed Steve, my brother, who had lymphoma um, in 2004. You were the first one that met him. And you were also the last one to say goodbye to him, even as he was buried. And I think that's the continuum. What you should know is that Jennifer is as beloved in Utah as she is here in California. Um, she is a neighbor in Bluff. She has done, again, the most quiet, elegant, life-saving work for the Red Rock Wilderness and for Bears Ears and for Native people, for the Diné. Um, your influence is immense. We know that you communicate between worlds, and we are all blessed because of you. So this is for you. Did you survive that? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Terry, you, you mentioned your brother Steve, who came on the Cancer Help Program. And um, would you be willing to share some of Steve's story with us? I would. Breathe with me. Um, Steve came in 2004 um, to Commonweal because of Jennifer and because of our love and respect for you, Michael. And it changed his life. And as a writer, I have to tell you today, I have no words, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, I'm here because of love. I'm here because of my love for you, Michael. I'm here because of my love for you, Jennifer, and for those of you in this community that have held me so many times um, in difficult situations and in joyous ones. Um, what I would love to share with you about Steve, and it's been 20 years, um, and when you came in, you saw a flame burning. That was Steve's gift to Commonweal when he went home. He um, worked pipeline construction. He was doing metal work as a welder, and he created a candle holder so that when people could come, um, they could honor the lives of, of those, both who were living, those who had passed, and those who are still with us in, in between worlds. And so it matters to me that that, that candle is still lit. I want to share with you a story. Um, and I don't know how it will go, but I want to honor Commonweal in the telling of this story. When Steve came, he had the responsibility of a pipeline company. He, had, he was a father, he was a wife, um, he was a brother, he was a son, with tremendous obligations. And he had never 
ever been alone. Never. He had never had his own room. And when he came, he came for himself to learn how not only to live, but how to die. To not only be cured, but more importantly, what he learned was how to heal. And I remember when he wrote to me, he said, I don't know how to do this because I've never been given the opportunity. Michael, you were the first person, I believe, who saw Steve as the intelligence that he was. Mm. Not as someone to help or to serve, or, but really as a man who was an intellectual, creative thinker. You met him. And that changed everything. Two things. When he came, he went on a walk, and he found those stones that have a hole in them. And when he came home, he said, we can look at this two ways, my cancer, my living, my dying, um, as a whole, in a rip in our family fabric, or as a door or window to walk through. And he brought each of us a stone and said, I choose to have my cancer be a door that I can walk through. That's what you gave him. Jennifer, that's what you gave him. More importantly, and this is private, um, when Steve had gone on that walk and had both a reckoning and an awakening of who he was in the cosmic scheme of things, beyond religion, beyond conditioning, he really touched his soul. My brother could not have done that without your support, without you seeing him as a man with a different kind of mission. And I thank you for that. The other thing I will share with you is that when Steve was in the last stages of his cancer, we were together, we spoke every day, um, we were 18 months apart. I cannot tell you how close we are. You know that with your own siblings. Um, and he was having his last chemotherapy. And I was holding his hand and he said, Terry, I would give anything to know what mother had been thinking when she was dying. I would have loved to have known her thoughts through her illness and healing. And I looked at Steve and he looked at me and I realized he had never read Refuge. And he looked at me and he said, I've never read it. And we went on to other things. I received a letter from Steve, my brother, from Commonweal. And it said, dearest Terry, how could you know that 15 years later, you wrote this for me? That is the kind of transformation that occurs here, not only for the individual, but for the families. And I honor you, I thank you, and it's a privilege to be able to tell you that publicly. Thank you, Terry. Let's go quiet again for a minute. Sometimes I think that the silences are the secret to our work. The spaces between the words. Mm. And what Terry has described that took place for Steve, who was such a beautiful soul, and when, when Terry came yesterday and we were talking, and she said, Steve is with us. Um, and I, see, I been on a long journey as to how to understand the words, Steve is with us. Um, and this goes back to the question of mystery and the people here who hold the mystery. And it's a very interesting balance because many people in our community are not mystery-oriented. They um, are astonished by the beauty of nature, uh, of the real world that we can put our hands on. They, if they're kind, they tolerate the mystics uh, with good grace. 
But if they're honest, they know that the mystery is not for them. And in fact, Commonweal is filled with people who know the mystery is not for them. So the balance for me is always, and by the way, the people who hold the mystery, uh, people who often say they're on a spiritual path, my experience is that they are no kinder and no more evolved than the people who are living in the practical world. So I don't privilege mystery holding or spiritual paths over people who live in the practical world. In fact, very often, I find the people who are living in the world that they can feel and touch and see uh, to be remarkably kind and often remarkably wise. Obviously, not all of them, but somehow being on a spiritual path to me or holding the mystery, which are slightly different things, doesn't guarantee anything as far as I can tell. It's simply one of the paths. Um, there's a great line from the great psychologist William James who, who said uh, that he could not tell whether the ultimate reality was one or many, okay? Uh, and he said, we all have our overbeliefs. So we all have these frames that we work with, whether of mystery or of practical reality. And in the Cancer Help Program, many people come who are very practical. I remember a man, wonderful man, who came and said he was religious but not spiritual. You remember him? Uh, he totally practical, but had a religious orientation, but totally practical. So uh, what I want to say here is that the story that Terry told about Steve, the miracle is that over 220 week-long retreats that have, with eight people in each retreat over the last 37 years that Jennifer has been with us, um, there are so many people who've had these astonishing experiences. Not everybody, but so many people have. So part of the mystery is, how does it happen that eight people who don't know each other come together with 12 staff who've been doing this often for 10, 20, 30 years together because people tend not to leave once they're on the staff. Um, how is it that such deep healing takes place? And it's not what we do. That's the secret. It is that Something has called these people to be there together um, in some completely mysterious way. And at the end of the week, I remember one recent alum who was, I think, 92 or something and wants fiercely to live, said uh, she actually had to leave early, but then she came back again. She said, I leave with seven new sisters. That's what she said. I leave with seven new sisters. So there's this incredible sense of belonging, of finding home, mm -hmm. of finding relationships with people that are deeper than in a week, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's some, and I think, as I think, what is the through line of this conversation, which we've dedicated to Jennifer? I think the true line may well be the holding of both mystery and non-mystery, whatever we want to call it, as co-equal ways of experiencing life in the world, not privileging one over the other, mm -hmm. but nonetheless recognizing that the people who hold the retreats tend to hold mystery, all right? The people who do the juvenile justice work or the work on ocean policy reform tend to do their work in the outer world. And then the people who do the Cancer Help Program tend, in general, to hold mystery together. And so it seems as though even though we can't privilege mystery over a practical being in the world, there is something about holding mystery that enables people from both the practical world and the mystery orientation to find this deep experience. So I'm curious, Terry, I've just been on a riff about this, but... What is your experience of that? 
Well, I think mystery is very practical. Okay. You know, <laughs> so maybe you're asking the wrong person. But, <laughs> You know, I think we're so used to the binaries. Mm -hmm. You know, is the glass half full? Is the glass half empty? It's both, you mm -hmm. know? And I think we drink it and, um, and we're filled. And it's, I think it's, it's complicated, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think for in Steve's case, you know, he was laying pipe every day that natural gas would go through. But um, that's what he did by day, by night. He was the artist. And what came together was... Um, a commitment to both. And that's, I think it's the commitment to both. I know with you, Jennifer, you know, not only were you holding the mystery, but you were also doing all the details and administration. So I think we hold it all together until we don't. And then we separate them, you know, and try and figure out what's what. You know, I think it's the same with grief and love. Um, with joy and laughter and tears come from both the pain of the world and the joy of the world. And the mystery is, I think, how they come together, the integration, which is to me your gift, Michael, of what is integrating medicine, spirit, health, wholeness. And I think that was what Steve experienced for the first time, is that he was a whole person. He wasn't a sick person, he wasn't a person with cancer, he wasn't a husband or a father or this, but he was, himself and and I think that's what was shared in that space hmm. um, and coming from a state like Utah uh, that's radical and I think you know one of the reasons why I love coming to the Bay Area um, you know whether it's at the bookstore whether it's you know a Commonweal or Mesa Refuge or working with Ellen, you know, at Compton, there is a higher consciousness here. There really is. That's not a judgment, it's a fact. And I think for those of us who come here to the edge of the continent, be, we're able to go home with a heightened sense of, of who we are, what we are a part of, and the um, integration of all of that. Mm. You spoke of a higher consciousness, and this is, at one level, it's above my pay grade, but I have a feeling that that higher consciousness can be held either as a mystery or by people who are totally in the scientific or secular world. So I, I always try to, because one of the things that feels not true to me is that people on a spiritual path are somewhat higher than mm -hmm. people who aren't. And, and it seems to me that that's a particularly important aspect of reality for us to cling to, I guess, hold to. And what I love about life is you just don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and we think we're going through the world consciously or unconsciously or fast or slow, and then all of a sudden there's a moment where you think, ah, this. You're listening to a TNS presentation with Terry Tempest Williams and host Michael Lerner. May I share a story? Sure. You just brought it to my mind. I have not told this publicly, so I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm just going to be honest. So this is the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, right? And it is a holy act in my mind. 99% um, of all of the species that have been listed have, are still here. But we also know we're in the sixth extinction. Um, Congress... Uh, had a celebration um, for the 50th anniversary in September. And I was asked, and it was a deep honor, and I was terrified to be the MC. I don't even know what that means, especially for an introvert. <laughs> but I said yes um, with the Center of uh, Biological Diversity and the Endangered Species Coalition. I was back east. I was teaching. And I thought, I just need to get a dress. This really shows the superficial side of me, I have to tell you. And so I thought, I just have to get a dress. There's no dresses in Utah. I've never been to a gala before. And so I'll just get one when I'm in New York. And then I just thought, I can't deal with department stores. Um, I'm just going to go to a vintage shop and find where one is, and I'll find something that'll be fine. Then I'm done. I can have a nice summer. And when I come back, there's the dress. Practical. So I went to this, um, what I thought was a secondhand store it was. I looked through, it was dark, you know, I didn't have my glasses on. 
I saw this red dress and I thought, that's great. It's kind of Republican-ish. You know, it's for both sides of the aisle. Um, I saw a little flash of turquoise on it when I held it up. It was kind of flowy. And I thought, great, I'm wearing with black pants. I take it off the hanger, hand it to the woman. And she says, hmm, do you want me asking what the occasion is? And I said, oh, it's just, it's this gala for the Congress and I have to be the MC." And she goes, you're bold. And I said, yes, red's a powerful color. It will help me. Walk out and she said, own it. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing. I do now, you know, and, it's, and I didn't think about it. So I go home, it's in the bag. She left it on the hanger. I put it in the closet, close it, come home, don't think about it, come back. I'm prepared with my talk. I take the dress out, it's in one of those holders. I put it in my bag, I have my Levi's cowboy boots, a coat, sweater, that's it. I get there, the planes are late. I only have like 40 minutes before it's the cocktail party, all of this dress. I pull out the dress, I put it in the hanger, and I think, what am I going to do? The entire dress, it turns out it was a Vivian Westwood, the entire dress was erect penises. <laughs> and I'm not talking just like maybe. I'm talking about gold erect penises, S&M with pins and everything else you can imagine. And I thought, I cannot wear this. I, I didn't know what to do. I called my niece, who's an intern on Congress, and I went, you won't believe this, but I have this dress. I thought it was red. I thought there was some turquoise in it, and it's, it has got spaceships in on it. And I, she goes, Terry, it can't be that bad. And I said, okay, we're doing FaceTime. I go like this, and she goes, you cannot wear this. I, I'm, I'm getting the dress to a meeting. I said, I have no time. And I said, maybe no one will notice. <laughs> and I just thought, the universe gave me this dress. I don't know what to do. It's not about me. You know, uh, there's going to be 800 people. They're on stage. I'm just going to do my work. I have no choice. So I put it on. I have my cowboy boots on and black pants and this dress. I go down, and it's this really wonderful, nerdy public policy person on endangered species. And he goes, Miss what? Let's go. It is so obvious. Anyway, I get to the event. Everyone is laughing. I sit in the corner like this. And when I have to go up, the first person I have to welcome and give an award to is Cory Booker. And I stand up and say, Senator Booker, thank you so much. And he goes, holy shit. Twirls me around. I turn around and I said, you know, I couldn't say anything. I just said, you know, the great thing about being a conservationist is that we're spirited people. And these are difficult times. And we have to celebrate. And, and everyone was hilarious. It changed the whole temperature of the room. The weather system changed. Instead of being doom and gloom that of all the species we're losing, it was like, let's just celebrate. And let's just erect a different kind of, you know, public policy. And it brought joy, it brought humor. It was Jenny Holzer saying, you know, rejoice. These are intolerable times. And the final straw was the beautiful Michelle um, Williams, Martha Williams, who is the secretary of Fish and Wildlife Service. Dot the eyes, you know, beautiful person, public policy, serious. She got up there, she led a cheerleading chant. It brought out the most beautiful, most hopeful, most, um, it's just like, what are we gonna do? The world is on fire, let's dance. What are we gonna do? The world is on fire, let's make love. You know, what are we gonna do? And. That's, that's how I think we come together. Mm. And what was so beautiful is um, Representative Grijalda stood up and said, I used to think that the Endangered Species Act was about animals. It's about all of us. It's about all beings for all time, right here, right now. And he said, look at the mix. Mm. 
You know, 10 years ago, it was largely people over 50, white male. This time, it was well over half were people of color and women. Under 40, alive, awake, and alert. And I, I'm, the mystery was what was needed was not the words, not eloquence, but a dress that mysteriously showed up, you know, by a woman who loved animals in a dark secondhand store by a woman who was in a hurry. So that's what I would share with you. So the title that we gave this talk, Rejoice. I'm so embarrassed I told that story, I have to tell you. Oh, I love the story. I just have to say that, but anyway. No, no, I love it. And it fits, because uh, the question really all of us face, these are such difficult times, you know? I mean, all times seem difficult, and they've felt difficult to people since the beginning of time, you know? Maimonides said it was not, uh, you shouldn't count the number of days till the Messiah was going to show up. Or you think about the the period of the uh, Black Plague in Europe or just starvation, the horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, uh, famine, war, uh, contagion, fire. But we have the experience that this is different, although it felt like that earlier. It felt to them that they felt equally close to the end of something. But now we can measure all kinds of things, and and we know that we're in this bottleneck of biodiversity, and that only a portion of the beauty of creation will make it through this bottleneck. We do know that it's very likely that biodiversity will flourish again in some form, unless we Uh, do more damage than we may be able to do. But um, we don't know whether humans will make it through this bottleneck, and we don't know if humans make it through, what kind of human beings will make it through. We have no idea what their values will be. There's certainly a competition in this period of time, not only in the United States, but all over the world, of people with very, very different values, some of which are about sharing and welcoming all and, uh, you know, inclusivity and diversity and justice. Um, And others are very much, the world is a really hard place and uh, you have to fight to protect yourself and your family. And um, that's the real world. And you guys are living in a dream world and, um, and we have to fight. And life is tragic, but we have to fight to preserve things. And so, I mean, there are many other dimensions of this, but that's the most obvious dimension. So the question, at least for me, since my original vision of Commonweal was a center for healing ourselves and healing the earth, what does it mean to work on healing ourselves and healing the earth when it's hard to be healthy people on a sick planet? And what does it mean specifically in the year that we face and the years ahead to find the best way we can live, to find uh, for myself whatever peace and joy and service I can be, whatever the outcome. Um, And that's something I know that we share as a question, and that was why this title that we gave it of Rejoice in These Difficult Times spoke to me. There was another wonderful man who came on the Cancer Help Program, a wonderful um, writer and storyteller whose name I'm just blocking on, but his most recent book was Embrace Fiercely This Burning World. Lopez, is that it? Barry Lopez, yeah. And I thought that title, Embrace Fiercely This Burning World, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it seems to me to speak precisely to that. And there's so many ways to embrace it. Yeah. You know, I see with Great Salt Lake, who many of you know, um, is in retreat. And if we don't do something as a people, as a community, um, 
we had a big snow year last year. Mm-hmm. And so the scientists said it maybe gave the lake two more years. Mm-hmm. So we're talking six years. Um, I have seen our community along the Wasatch Front come alive in ways I didn't think were, was possible. And it is rejoicing the lake. You know what? It has a history of being wasted water, that it's not good for anything, um, that it smells, et cetera, et cetera. But now it is being celebrated. It is being honored. Um, there is a rally on Saturday. They expect thousands of people. Um, there is a vigil being held every day during the uh, legislature. They have to walk through waves that have, of puppets and brine shrimp and species. Um, there's going to be a bird watcher's day where everyone brings their binoculars and just stares saying, we're watching you, you know? So there's a lot of creativity. There's also some really hardcore policy issues going forth about water banking, about monitoring our water use, conservation, um, a lot of pressure on the Mormon church. My point is, and legal actions um, and grow the flow, it, it is brimming with possibilities. And a younger generation has taken hold. It's diverse. Um, it's intergenerational. And to me, this is what the lake has called forth from us, that we've taken her for granted. Um, she is now being seen as a sovereign being and and there's now discussions about what does that mean? You know, does a, a saline lake have rights? Do rivers have rights? It's a global movement. It has brought forth all of the things that no one dare talk about because our lives are at stake. And what people are realizing is the health of Great Salt Lake is the health of our own families, of our own communities, both human and wild. And I never would have believed it. And it has energized a very sleepy town um, and it is transcending religion, politics, and species. Hmm. And I think every community that we're a part of has an example like this. It may not be as extreme. It may be more extreme in the immediate. You know fire better than anybody. You know mudslides. You know what's happening on this beloved landscape. And I think with Native people as our guides, we are being led by Indigenous leaders that the discussion about the Bear River Massacre, the largest massacre of Indian people, took place right outside Great Salt Lake. That is now being discussed and led by Darren Perry. That is a conversation we have not had. Now that is tied directly to the life of the lake, to the life of our community, and it is a moral, spiritual, and religious issue. So I think the world is burning, but seeds are being dropped. And it's a time of tremendous germination, tremendous pain. I think we're all grieving. And if we can feel that ache, feel that despair, feel the terror, it's also the love, it's also the commitment, it's also the transformation, and we are not alone. We cannot do this alone. And that's where our communities come together. And I will even go so far, Michael, and I know you, we've talked about this. I think the other species are calling us. They're asking for our help, and they're also saying we're here to help you. And you know that was something we couldn't say a few years ago. We all thought it maybe, you know, but it's what indigenous people have always known. It's what local people know. Um, and I, I just feel that our task now is to pay attention. And it's not about hope or despair, but it's there's something deeper than hope. And I believe that's engaging in the places we call home, both large and small, uh, and see what what bubbles up. So something deeper than hope and that the species are calling to us. And that raises the question of what interspecies communication is. Um, When you speak of the species calling to us, that reminds me, of course, of... uh, the ancient concept of uh, the soul of the earth, you know, that that the earth now reconstructed as the Gaia hypothesis, that the earth is a living organism that self-regulates and is actually alive. It's a a living being in the shape of a planet. 
And actually, that is moving toward mainstream credibility and science, the Gaia hypothesis. My other favorite uh, uh, piece of that, um, that the whole universe is designed to support life, is further away from scientific acceptance. But the Gaia hypothesis is moving. Um, so when you speak of the species, the, the, the life of Earth, the, the Earth's soul and the species that make it up calling to us, I love that. How, how do you understand that? How do you understand? Do you understand that in a literal sense that they are communicating to us? Or is it in some soul sense that is beyond words and we just have to hold it as a mystery? I mean, what comes into my mind, you know, when there's a photographer named Fuzzle Sheikh, we went and he's been photographing, um, I, would, I hate to say damaged, but it's true, um, exploited landscapes in southern Utah, for example, around Bears Ears, um, oil and gas, um, uranium mines that look like spaceships. Um, and we wanted to do a collaborative effort around Great Salt Lake. And we happened to be there. We did a circumnavigation of the lake. We happened to be there at its lowest point um, in recorded history. And this is a lake that's 12,500 years old. Um, for as far as you could see, it was a horizon of salt. And the water was blood red because of the, um, the chemistry, the uh, halophytes that are there. Outside the spiral jetty, we left each other and both went our own paths. And I walked to the lake, it was maybe a mile to walk to the water's edge. And what I noticed is that there was the current, but there was an undercurrent. And the undercurrent had more muscle um, to me than the, the current on the surface. And I knelt down to listen. And the water was blood red. And what I heard in my heart, and as a writer, I know my vocabulary, you know, um, they were not my words. And what I heard in my heart was, I am in retreat and it is not what you think. I believe that was the lake's spirit speaking. Mm. Um, and it intrigued me because I was prepared to grieve but I understand retreat. I understand what it means to be in retreat. Um, call it a Buddhist retreat, a meditation retreat, cancer retreat. It is a time to pull back and restore. And suddenly I looked at Great Salt Lake differently. And I thought, I'm paying attention to that. What does that mean if the lake, if Great Salt Lake is showing us what retreat looks like? We are now in a state of exposure. The lake has held the toxins at bay down. She's not gonna do that any longer. She's pulling back and saying, you deal with this. And so she's garnering her strength. That's how I see it. And so I'm saying, what, if I pull back, what's going to be exposed? If I have the courage to really go in retreat and look at the hard things of my own actions, how will I change? How will I shift? And who will I invite to look at that exposure with me? And if they're willing to come with me, then we can make some transformative change. I feel the lake is speaking to this community. Mm. Um, saline lakes around the world are crucial to climate stability. When you look at the RLC, the RLC is gone. You know what Owens Lake is, it's gone. The success rate, and this is germane to Commonweal, the rate, the percentage of Great Salt Lake to recover, to continue living, if you look at the other lives of the saline seas around the world, zero. There is never a saline lake that has retreated to the point where she is at that has survived, zero. I believe we can make a different story because there's so many things we can't control that are so huge. Our task simply is to get water to the lake. And I think we can figure out how. 
if we, if we understand it differently. So I think it's the imagination and the attention of listening um, in a different way, of perceiving energy in a different way, of looking at our elders who have been on the land for thousands of years um, and to let them lead and we are following the guidance of, of the indigenous leaders. It's not about co-opting, it's about can we see the world more whole, even holy? That's what I'm talking about. Mm. And I think that information is available to us if we can surrender mm. and give up our intellect for something deeper. Mm. Call it instinct, call it intuition, call it um, we are all one organism who's breathing together. Mm. You know, I'm fascinated by all the people I know who, in the midst of all the darkness that we feel, not generative darkness, but darkness that does not feel life-affirming, nonetheless really are holding the kind of hope that you're describing. Um, I think of my friend Bill Drayton, who started Ashoka, the Entrepreneurs for the Public, which has been a tremendous force for good around the world. And uh, he has this very hopeful vision that humanity is moving toward being a single organism, that, you know, that we're on a great adventure. Uh, I think of, you know, the great science fiction writer Octavia Butler and, yeah. you know, her parable of the sower, which the Washington Post just had a piece on it, incredibly uh, 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 accurate about the period of time we're living in now where, you know, a, a poor young black girl uh, starts walking up uh, uh, through California in the midst of just chaotic, you know, collapsed states with a clear vision uh, that we are earth seed and that our, our um, purpose and our destiny is to spread earth seed out into the cosmos. You know, that's Octavia Butler, you know. And I think about Alexis Pauline Gums, her book. Me? It's Alexis uh, yeah. Pauline Gums, mm -hmm. African-American writer, um, wrote Undrowned. Mm -hmm. And what she realized is that her ancestors, the trajectory across the Atlantic mm -hmm. um, from West Africa to the Caribbean mm -hmm. was the same trajectory of the black sea mammals. And so she made a commitment that she would see the sea mammals as her mentors, mm. that she would give her life to apprentice with these beings mm. who, who took the same path as her ancestors. It is such a glorious book mm. um, that, again, is interdisciplinary, intersectionality. Um, I would highly recommend it. Mm. So I think this is happening on all fronts in all countries right now. Mm -hmm. And I also, and I can only speak for myself, um, I am having to get clearer. I am having to get braver. I am having to care less what people think and more what am I being true to. And it's disorienting and it's scary, but I don't think we have a choice if we are really going to try and live our values, which mm -hmm. are difficult for, for me, for all of us, I think. But I think what makes sense to me is, you know, can we identify our gifts? You know, what is your gift? What is my gift? What is each of your gifts? And then can we employ that for the greater good and stay in that path of focus? And it's my opinion, it's small. I'm going to come home, you know, and, and I know what my work is. And it's going to be really, really hard. And I don't know how to talk to my own people, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I was fired from my own community, you know, and I think... I need to come back. For the first, I have not spoken in my community for seven years mm. after I was fired from the University of Utah. I was that broken. Um, I, I get to come back now and speak, and I'm so excited mm. um, because it doesn't matter if you're fired. It's like that was such a gift I didn't even know. That's mystery. Um, I came back stronger. Um, and more committed to home. It's where my language is. It's where my people are, and it's my family, and it's our mother lake. Mm. And so I think for each of us to find that place 
where that is in our own communities. And it's small, but it's deep and it's translatable. And when I see the Says Phoebe, I, I'm listening to that species. You know, when the, the pronghorn show up or the bison, you know, I want to know where they're walking. And when we were walking last summer along the edge, or last winter of Great Salt Lake, and we counted 648 dead eared grebes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to be quiet about that. Mm-hmm. Even if the biologists say that it's avian flu, mm-hmm. it's not. It's deeper than that. So I think we have to come forward in the places we call home with the gifts that are ours. Now, I have uh, for many years had a, a kind of a simple experience from the cancer health program and other healing work, which is not anything new, but it is the recognition that a wound is not only a wound, but it's an opening, and it's through the opening that the light can come. And we know that for individuals, and we actually know that for communities, and there have actually been times when it's been true for civilizations. The question is, is there enough of a wounding and enough of an understanding of the wounding for the wound to become an opening to a new level of consciousness on earth? And I really don't know the answer to that. I, I, uh, I am completely with you that it can be done at the community level and that people have stories like that at different communities all over the world. But whether we can find our way to be in a community together when, as a species, um, that's been really hard for us. Uh, and I really appreciate what you're saying yeah. because at this moment in time, we're all afraid to say anything mm-hmm. for fear of offense, you know? Mm-hmm. I've got a question for you, Michael. What role does grief play in healing in your experience? Well, a profound role. Um, but uh, Francis Weller, who co-leads the Cancer Help Program with me and wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, and he talks about five portals of grief, which I won't remember all of them, but, um, you know, there's the grief that we feel for our loss, there's the grief that we feel for the parts of us that were not welcomed in the world, there's ancestral grief, there's grief for what's going on in the world. You know, I can't remember the fifth. But <clears throat> it seems to me that each of the portals of grief um, may require different forms of healing. That, it, that when we feel grief, um, <coughs> grief evokes healing because the, the grief is so powerful that it's hard to live with. And so we, we seek something. Uh, right now, so many of these different portals of grief are being activated at the same time. And, um, and we just witness um, how difficult this is. And so it feels to me that these struggles are for each of us, and, and we do know that we heal in community. And so how do we find, because I don't think it's one vast community it's all these mm-hmm. cells of community. How do we find that? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think that conversations like this um, at least offer us the possibility. I, my, my view is that cynicism and despair don't get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's a lousy way to live. Mm-hmm. And even if the odds of making a difference are against us, um, why not try? Isn't it the most interesting way to live, Mm -hmm. to live with a sense of hope? Um, You know, my favorite Václav Havel uh, uh, quote is, you know, that optimism is the belief that things will go right and hope, by contrast, a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. So that's hope to me. It's like I look right into the darkness because that's my nature is to look directly into the darkness of both personal health and planetary health. But somehow that evokes in me hope, you know, 
because I find it the most interesting way to live. It doesn't have anything to do with the odds. It's just I'd rather live in hope than in the alternative. I love, um, we're grandparents now. Our son has two kids, um, Malka, who is six, and Sheja, who is four. And yesterday, two mornings ago, Sheja called me. He's four. And he said, Tate, they're from Rwanda. And so they called me Tate Blanca, the white grandmother. And he called me and goes, Tate, Daddy is sick. And I need you to explain to me what a fever is. And I said, Sheja, go into the bathroom and get a washcloth and get really cold water and rinse it and then put it on your dad's forehead. And he goes, Tate, I did not ask you to tell me what to do. I asked you to explain to me what I'm looking at. (laughs) And I thought, okay. He goes, tell me what a fever is. I need you to explain, you know, what a fever is. And I said, well, when the body's hot and you have an infection, the body's hot and it alerts you. I didn't know what to say. I said that you need rest. And he said, that's what I'm looking for. Daddy, you need rest. You know, (laughs) your body's found an infection. And then um, Malka went to get the washcloth to put on his head. And I and they were by now FaceTiming. And um, I said, oh, Malka, you're such a beautiful nurse. And she goes, Tate, I'm a doctor. You know? <laughs> and I just thought, here we are. You know, they do not need us to tell them what to do. They just want to be given instructions on what, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Tell me what's happening from your point of view. And then I loved that, you know, it's not about being a nurse, it's being a doctor. I always wanted to be a nurse until my grandfather said, mm-hmm. You cannot be a nurse, Terry. And I said, why not? And he said, because you will kill people. Um, <laughs> meaning that I would be very empathetic, but I would get the, dying, you know, the, the shot wrong. No, wonderful. It's all to say, you know, how do we really listen in a deeper way? How do we pay attention in a deeper way and find joy um, along the journey? And that remains a mystery. Terry, do you have a reading for us to bring us to a close? I do, and I I love you. And thank you so much to Mm. those of you who are with us um, all over the world and um, in our hearts for staying. Mm. This is from a piece called um, The Wings of Heron. And I just want to say I'm writing small. You know, there... We're publishing our own stuff. Um, I'm working with local publishers. It's just, I feel like that's where the pleasure is. Um, That's where the voice for me is now. I am searching for grace. If the facts don't matter anymore and misinformation does, if we fail to listen to the indigenous wisdom of First Nations and remain unmoved toward another way of being in right relationship to Earth, And the stories and statistics that scientists are bringing to us do not stir us to action on behalf of a living world that is suffering. And if the lives of our children and the future of their children's children are not first in our minds and thwarting the easy sleep of our privilege, then the question must be asked, are we too dead to the world to feel alive? Hmm. Believe the long-legged birds who are circling above us desperately looking for water. Believe the forests that are burning, whose surviving trees will later stand as sentinels, charred witnesses to animal bodies reduced to ash. Believe in flash floods roaring through burnt canyons, gathering debris in rivers running black in the desert, even in times of drought. Believe Great Salt Lake is retreating in plain sight, leaving what's left to the dust devils, whipping up clouds of chemicals, resting on the dry lake bed so we can inhale the toxic world we have created. Believe in the once shimmering bodies of water on the horizon that are now nothing more than a mirage made of heat waves, death dancing on salt flats. Believe in the silences. Before we can save this world we are losing, we must first learn how to savor what remains. There is still so much beauty in the world. This is more than an ecological crisis or a political crisis. It is a spiritual one. The earth will survive us. We are the ones being baptized by fire.
Thank you. Terry Tempest Williams, thank you for being with us again at the New School. Thank you. Let's see. Thank you all for being You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Terry Tempest Williams and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our co-director is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. You can find us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, Vimeo, and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks for listening.